Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. All right, I'm thankful for a praise team uh, that leads us in the message of God's grace week in and week out. And I am thankful for God's word upon which those songs are based. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and join me in Philippians 1, we'll start in sort of the last third of verse 18. Let's, let's pray together. God, we, we ask that you would bless our time together around this little letter to the church at Philippi. God, that we would be reminded that this is not just your word to the first century church in Philippi, it's your word to us today. God, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces us, God. It gets down into the core of who we are, and you have something to say to us this morning. And I pray, God, you would help me to say it. You would help us to receive it. God, that by your spirit we would be changed by it, such that we would glorify Christ more, look like Christ more. God, that we would be a joyous and hopeful and confident people no matter what comes. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, we've, we've seen Paul, his greeting. We've seen his prayer of thanksgiving. We've seen what he prays for the church at Philippi, he's writing to a church that's facing some external opposition and perhaps some disunity that's festering. And so he, he's modeling based on his own life. He's in prison and he still has joy and he's still sharing the gospel and he's, he's modeling how to live as one who follows Jesus in the face of adversity. Last week we, we saw that his priority, even as a prisoner, is the progress of the gospel, and, and we know that healthy churches need to have that same priority, that we prioritize the advance of the gospel. We put the gospel's advance above our own personal agendas, and, and that priority mobilizes us. It opens our mouths to speak the gospel. It inspires believers to be bold and fearless. It's a priority that reminds us it's not about us, it's about Jesus, right? And, and it's this This morning, as we transition into verse 18 down through 26, Paul kind of moves from saying that his priority is the advance of the gospel to now focusing on this Jesus-centeredness of his life. That's what he's going to focus on in Philippians 1, 18 through 26. And the reason that the advance of the gospel is Paul's priority, the reason it's his all-consuming ambition is because the, the focus of the gospel is Christ and his glory. So for us to be a gospel people, we need to be a King Jesus people. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord, beginning in the the very end, the last sentence of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as 
It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is necessary, more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I want to share with you three lessons from this text, three points from this text. And the first is this, to live for the advance of the gospel in the middle of trials, of persecution, of hardship, of adversity. To do this, we need to know what Paul knew, verses 18 through 20. We need to know what Paul knew. We had to share the same confidence that Paul had in his eternity. At the end of verse 18, Paul transitions from speaking about his present to looking to his future. He has rejoiced in the advance of the gospel, and now we read, yes, I will rejoice. Not only am I rejoicing in the current progress of the gospel, but even as I have faced trial, even as I have faced potentially the death penalty, I will rejoice. Paul's waiting for a verdict on his life, and he says, I'm going to rejoice. It's not just that I have rejoiced. It's not just that I'm rejoicing right now, but I will be a rejoicer. Paul is committed to future rejoicing, verse 19, for, that's the word that means because, for a reason. Why is he committed to future rejoicing? Because he knows this will turn out for his deliverance or his salvation. The word translated deliverance is the Greek word soteria or salvation. Now that raises an interpretive question for us. Is Paul saying that he's going to be delivered from prison? Is he talking about physical safety or is he talking about salvation through Jesus? And one key way of answering this question turns on the verb turn out. This will turn out for my deliverance, Paul says. The word turn out means to produce something or to result in something. Did you know that trials and distresses do not usually result in or produce physical safety? Trials often produce physical hardship, do they not? Paul's being opposed by, by gospel preachers with bad motives. That might give him a, you know might raise his blood pressure a little bit. So Paul is not saying that the trials that I have are going to make me physically safe. Paul is not saying the trials that I have necessarily mean I'm going to get out of prison. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that this, whatever this is, which is his imprisonment, it's being opposed by others, the this, does anybody have a this in your life? Just some stuff that's going on? Not good stuff? Nobody. 
All right. I guess y'all have a good day. All right. Paul's got some this in his life. It's, it's hard. There's adversity. There's stuff going on. And he says the this of his life will produce his salvation. What? Is this not what the Bible says? Count it all joy when you face various trials, my brethren. Why? Because God will use the trials to produce endurance and steadfastness in the faith. You'll have an opportunity that you actually have to know that you have faith because you had to have faith in the midst of the trial. Silva says this, It makes little sense to say that what Paul has suffered, whether the imprisonment or the work of his opponents, will lead to his release. So what then is Paul talking about? He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about how God will use adversity in his life to strengthen his faith in Christ so that he would see Christ in the end. Paul says, this is going to turn out for my salvation. And when he does, he's quoting from Job 13, verse 16. Y'all remember the book of Job? He loses basically everything other than his life. And his friends say, well, the reason you lost everything is you must be a wicked, vile sinner. You've got some secret sin that you're not telling us. And Job's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was living for God. And Job, this righteous man who's lost nearly everything, in Job 13, 16 says, you might accuse me, but I know one day I will stand vindicated before God. That's what Paul is saying here. The trials are going to drive me to look at Jesus. I'm going to keep looking for Jesus. I'm going to keep living for Jesus. And one day I will be vindicated before God. And these trials are just making me look to Jesus all the more. Whatever trial you're in, don't let it make you despair. Don't let it make you despondent. Let it drive you to look to Jesus. Paul's focus in verses 19 and 20 is not the verdicts of men in a courtroom. It is the verdict of God on judgment day. And he will be vindicated. In the end of verse 20, we learn Paul will have this salvation whether he lives or dies. Which is another indication this isn't about his deliverance from prison. Paul's salvation is not ultimately deliverance from prison. It is union, union with a person and his name is Jesus Christ. His salvation will therefore be according to, do you see it in verse 20, his eager expectation and hope that he will not be ashamed. Shame is the disgrace of God's judgment that falls on those who fail to trust in Christ. Paul knows the Father will glorify the Son and that all who believe in Jesus will not be put to shame. Isaiah 28, 16, Romans 9, 33, and Romans 10, 11. His eager expectation and hope is an intense, hope-filled expectation. It is not wishful thinking. It is a hope founded on the promises of God in the gospel. There's only one other place in the Bible we find the word eager expectation. And it's in Romans chapter 8 where we learn that the creation is yearning or groaning for its renewal at the return of Christ. All of creation has this hopeful expectation, this confidence that when the creator returns, all things will be made new. And Paul feels like that. I have this eager expectation of beholding Christ and knowing that I'll stand before him unashamed because of the gift of Christ in his place. Meanwhile, the 
Lord is just using these trials to shape him and fashion him into a more godly man along the way. So Paul will rejoice because he knows he will be vindicated by God. And this reality frees him up from thinking about what people think or how people treat him. Can you imagine if you just move through life and, well, I'm good with God, I'm serving God, so what other people think? Eh, not that big a deal. You get mistreated? Eh, eternity's good. So rather than focusing on Everybody else, what everybody else thinks, how it's going, how defeated I am. What does he do? Verse 20, but instead of living in misery because of my trials, instead, but I speak of and live for Christ with what? Full courage. The word full courage is the word openness or frankness or boldness. It was a word used in first century Greek of open political speech. It's the same word used in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says we have boldness to enter the presence of Christ, uh, the presence of the Father, because of the blood of Christ. So Paul's going to live openly, boldly, frankly, confidently, no matter what, knowing that God will honor Christ in his body. The word honor here is the word to magnify, to increase, to extol, to make great. Paul said, because my eternity's secure, God can see fit to use my body, my life, my mind, my heart to magnify Jesus. Did you know that's, if you're saved, that's what you're supposed to be? You're supposed to be a magnifying glass on the glory of Christ. It's not supposed to just be an abstract idea in the Bible. It's supposed to be shining through you as you magnify and point to the one who delivered you from all your junk. Praise God. By the way, I hope y'all got about 50 to 60 minutes this morning because this is an awesome text. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But we do have hot dogs waiting in the parking lot. So we might just send for some hot dogs and then we'll continue. <laughs> Paul's, Paul's future is assured in the courtroom of God, so he's not got to hold back in the courts of men. Instead, now as always, do you see that in verse 20? What does that mean? Paul has not always glorified Christ. He started glorifying Christ on the road to Damascus when Jesus interrupted his mission and gave him a new mission. Well, that's what he's saying. Ever since I met Jesus, I didn't take a time out. Now, I don't know about you, but that's convicting for some of us, starting with me. Because, you know, that's what we tend to do, right? We come to Christ, and we get excited about Christ, and then we're like, ah, I got other stuff to be about. Let's just call a timeout. We'll come back to Jesus in six months or six years. Paul says, look, I never took a timeout. Jesus met me on the road to Damascus. He shook me up. He changed my life. He gave me a meaning and a purpose. And now, as always, whether I'm in prison or whether I'm on the mountaintop, I'm going to magnify Jesus. He will use my life or my death to showcase the greatness of Jesus. That's the, that's the posture. That's the disposition of somebody that God will use to glorify His Son, which is what you were made for. You want to have joy? Get on mission glorifying the Son of God. There's no other mission that's going to bring you enduring, lasting joy. To rejoice in trials, we got to have Paul's same confidence. we got to know that our eternity is assured. But before we move to verse 21, I don't want you to miss 
what I skipped in verse 19. This is, this is fascinating to me. I know this will turn out for my salvation. I know trials will produce salvation in my life. How? Verse 19. Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul's not confident in himself. Paul doesn't say, hey, I'm Paul. I've got this. He doesn't even say, now get this. He doesn't even say, I know what God did in me on the road to Damascus, so me and Jesus, we're good based on what happened 10 years ago. I want to be sure you catch that. Because there's a tendency in Baptist life to have sort of a decisionalism Christianity that's more trusting in your experience or your decision than it is in your present walk with Jesus. Paul doesn't say, I know I made a decision on the road to Damascus. He says, I know that you're praying for me to endure, and I know that the God who gave me the Spirit to indwell me at the outset will continue to fill me because you're praying for me. Is this, is this making sense? So if you're walking not with Jesus and you don't care about the things of Christ and you're separated from the body of Christ and you don't care about being a part of a local church, then don't sit around resting in a decision that you made when you were 15 years old. You should have some warning lights going on the dashboard of your life. Now, it might be genuine, but if it's genuine, the Spirit of God who's in you is going to be convicting you right now about some things that need to change. And if He's not convicting you about some things that change, then... Maybe we need to trust Christ this morning. Maybe we need to step into the family of God this morning. Because when you step into the family of God, it's not a you and Jesus only thing. It's a you and Jesus and God's people thing. And the people of God should be praying that you would have the Spirit of God, that you would endure with God to the end so that when you face trials and adversity and hardship and death and cancer, that God would use it to make you look more like Jesus, not to drive you away from the things of God. What trials do in your life is a, a big indicator of whether you're walking with Christ or away from Christ. Paul tells us God's going to use his trials to save him through the Philippians' prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus. Paul knows the trials he faces will result in his salvation because people are praying for him. The church of God is praying for him. You will search in vain. You will search the Bible in vain for a lone ranger, me and Jesus are good, so I don't need a church Christian. You won't find such a Christian because there is no such thing as such a Christian. As Silva writes, even the Apostle Paul's personal growth, his sanctification, does not take place in isolation from the support of a local church. And if Paul needed a local church praying for him, bless God, we need a local church praying for us. So let me ask you on your prayer list, it may not be a bullet point on the church prayer guide, but let me encourage you, let's be a church that prays for one another's endurance. Let's be a church that prays that we would have the Spirit of Christ, that He would fill us continually so that trials would lead to sanctification and not drive us away. The church is praying for Paul for the provision of the Spirit of God. The translation we read said that 
the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus. That's, that's not what the word means. The word literally means the, the supply or the provision of the Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that you can lose the Holy Spirit. If you belong to Jesus, you are baptized by the Spirit. You get the Spirit. But you need to be continually and ongoingly filled with the Spirit for whatever stage of life He's got you in right now. Fee says this, here is the key to Christ being glorified in every way. By Paul's being supplied the Spirit of Christ Jesus himself, who will live powerfully through Paul who stands trial. So in a sense, as Paul is on trial, who's on trial with him? Christ Jesus. Whatever happens to Paul is happening to Jesus. We need the ongoing supply of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, the Spirit sent by the Father and the Son to empower us to live like Jesus and for Jesus and in Jesus until we see Jesus. For trials to result in salvation, we've got to stand, we've got to serve, we've got to strive, and we've got to share how in the power of the Spirit of Jesus. You can't do this on your own. You won't do this on your own. You've got to be indwelled and filled by the Spirit of God. And God provides the Spirit in answer to the prayers of God's people. Why do you need to be in a 3D group? Because you need some people who know your trials, who are praying that God would fill you according to the trial that you have so that you could be walking with Christ in spite of the mess that surrounds your life. God brings about our endurance in the faith through fierce trials, through the praying of His church, and the provision of His Spirit in answer to the praying of His church. So when you face a trial that will either confirm and deepen your salvation or it will derail you, let me ask you, who will pray for you? North Roanoke will pray for you. And some of you just learned something this morning. I didn't know the church was supposed to pray for that. We're supposed to pray for one another that we would be filled with the Spirit to meet the trials that we face. And there's trials in our church every week. We need to be a praying people, praying, begging God to, to fill us that we might endure. And Paul knows that God's going to fill him with the Spirit of Christ himself because the Philippians are praying for him. He knows that God will see to it that Christ is magnified in him no matter what happens to his physical body. And he knows that he will not be put to shame in the day of Christ Jesus. And no wonder then that Paul says, yes, I will rejoice. No matter what happens, I'm going to rejoice. But the trials and distresses that Paul faces are real. If convicted of the charges against him, he will be executed. So, so why not just play it safe? Why not just be quiet about all this Jesus stuff? Like Paul's on trial for being a, a Jesus freak. He's, he's facing child, trial for being a Jesus freak. He's in prison for being a Jesus freak. You know what your temptation to do if you're on trial and in prison for being a Jesus freak? Just stop talking about Jesus. Just long enough to get out of prison, right? And then I'll get back to talking about Jesus. But Paul's like, no, I'm not going to do it. Have you ever thought about that? Like, Paul, just be quiet. What are you doing? If you'll be quiet, then you'll get out. They'll believe that you're not a threat. And then, you know, you can tell more people about Jesus. He's like, no, I'm telling people about Jesus wherever I am, no matter what it costs me, because I'll stand vindicated on the last day. Paul is radical, is he not? I mean, he's a crazy guy. 
And yet, I want to submit to you this morning that the radical life of Paul is the normal Christian life. The the easy Christian life of American Christianity, show up for an hour and endure a sermon from the pastor and then go home and not think about Jesus again till next week, that's, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is to be consumed with the gospel, consumed with Christ. Why is Paul so radical? Because, do you see it? 4, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's a real Christian who has learned, secondly, that belonging to Jesus, don't miss this. <laughs> Why are Christians so crazy? Why are they so radical? Because belonging to Jesus radically changes living and dying. There's no other religion that does that. It radically changes living and dying. In verse 21, we find a single verse that captures much of the essence of the Christian life. In the Greek sentence, there is no verb is in the sentence. All right, so if you could visualize this, Paul's writing, and he says, for to me, it's got to be personal, This is not some philosophy or some mantra that's out there on a poster board. It's a mantra that's in his heart. It's in his soul. To me, boom, here's the motto. You want to know the motto of the Christian life? To me, to live Christ and to die gain. That's it. To live Christ, to die gain. Now what's interesting is the words Christ and gain in the Greek sound almost identical. And the words live and die in the verbal forms he writes are uh, phonetically related. They almost rhyme. Paul is saying something here that's profound. And I don't want us to skip past it. This is how Paul operates. Everybody heard of, that's his M.O.? His modus operandi. You want to know Paul's MO? To live Christ, to die gain. For Paul, living not only is Christ, right? To live is Christ, but it's more than that. It means Christ. Life points to Christ. Life is with Christ, for Christ, in Christ, unto Christ, because of Christ. Life represents Christ. When Christ took hold of Paul, his life suddenly and permanently became about someone greater than life itself. To live as Christ because Christ is greater than life. Many people spend their lives trying to have a great life, don't they? People want a comfortable life, a bucket list life, an early retirement life, an under par life. And at the end of the day, what will they do? They will die and their death will be loss, not gain. Because if you live for anything other than Christ, you, your death ends in loss. Have you thought about that? You put anything else in the blank other than Christ and death is loss. Marita and Chan. Put it this way, how would you complete this sentence? Here's the application portion of the sermon this morning. You can write it down in your Bible. For me, living is blank. If you put any other cheap substitute in the blank, look what happens. For me to live is money, pleasure, power, beauty, entertainment, leisure, hunting, fishing, uh uh-oh, thrill-seeking, cars, recognition, anything else you put in the blank, follow the logic of the passage. What happens next? Then dying is blank. If you say living is money, then you'd complete the statement with dying is being broke. 
If you say living is pleasure, then you'd say dying is having no more pleasure. What about power? Dying is becoming powerless. What about beauty? Dying is losing all beauty and rotting six feet under the ground. What about entertainment? Dying is having no more fun. What about recognition? Dying is the end of people, the end of knowing that people know or care about who you are or what you've done. If you live for anything else other than Christ, death is loss. But if you live for Christ, death is gain. For the Christian to live is Christ. And that means getting saved is not you adding Jesus to your life. Salvation is God overruling any lesser vision of life that you had before you met Jesus and giving you his own passion for the glory of his Son. Church, when we can truly say to live as Christ, we know that death equals gain because death is the gaining of our lifelong passion, Christ himself. If Paul lives, his aim, his ambition, and his purpose equals Jesus. And if he dies, he just gets Jesus in greater measure. As he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Jesus gives us a reason to live that doesn't disappoint in death. He transforms our dying by transforming our living, and He transforms our living by transforming our dying. You follow that? Because I'm going to get Christ in full in death, I can live for Him fully now. And when I live fully for Christ now, I can look forward to having Him fully when I die. There's one person who can do this in your life. There's one thing that can do this in your life. It is Jesus Christ the Lord, the one who suffered and died and rose and transforms your life by letting you know in death you get him. By the way, this mindset is what makes a Christian more than a conqueror, Romans 8.37. It's not that just we live conquering, we conquer and are victorious even in death. Neither Satan nor civilizations are shaken by lukewarm Christians or double-minded churches. The enemy wants you to say to live is Christ as long as there's nothing else fun, comforting, or convenient to live for at any given moment. Satan is fine with people adding Jesus to their lives, but he is terrified by people. For whom Jesus is life. When your life is gloriously transformed into a passionate pursuit of Christ, death will be gain. And that reality will release you to live in a fearless pursuit of His glory right now. The reason that many cannot say to live as Christ is because they haven't died. You won't recognize how desperately you need to have to be able to say that to live is Christ until you die. You can't live for Christ until you die to yourself and to all other lesser gods. Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul lives for Christ out of gratitude and love as a changed man. Why wouldn't we live for Jesus? Jesus is, after all, the Christ. This is Paul's favorite title for Jesus. It's a word repeated five times in this one paragraph. Did you notice how much Paul said Christ, Christ, Christ? 
Why is he so captivated by Christ Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed and appointed Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Fee says this, He's the Christ. He's the crucified, exalted Lord, present by the Spirit. He is the coming King. He's the Christ. He's the one who, God, as God, emptied Himself and as man humbled Himself to death on a cross. He's the Christ, the one whom God has now given the name above all names, Philippians chapter 2. He's the Christ. He's the one for whom Paul has gladly suffered the loss of all things in order to gain him and know him, Philippians chapter 3. He is the Christ. He, this is the name that sums up for Paul the whole range of his new relationship to God, his personal devotion, his commitment, his service, the gospel, his ministry, his communion with the saints, his inspiration in life. His everything is of, by, through, and for Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. To live is Christ, and to die is gain, knowing Jesus turns death into gain. And who doesn't want gain? Everybody wants gain. Now, can you imagine the Philippians reading this? Like, uh, hey, Paul, are you just going to check out on us, bro? Are you going to just get your gain and leave us fumbling around in Philippi? We've got some issues. We wrote you a letter, and now you're like, I just wanted, I'm just going to die. So in verse 22, Paul considers these options of living and dying. And after he says that death is gain, he says, since living in the flesh means a fruitful work for me, since God clearly has work for me to do, it's hard for me to know which one I would choose. If he lives, Paul will still joy joyfully preach Christ and help churches, and yet death is so much gain that if it were up to Paul, what does he say he would choose? In verse 22, I'm not sure, I can't tell. Fee says this, if he really had a choice, the alternatives would put him in a genuine quandary. Since from a given perspective, either one of them is to be preferred. Death is of so much gain to the believer that if Paul had to decide between living and dying, it would be a difficult decision. Then in verse 23, he adds that he's hard-pressed between the two options. The word hard-pressed means to be controlled by something, to be oppressed or distressed by something. But the good news is the options that Paul has are both good options. If I asked my daughter Elizabeth, who will turn 16 next weekend, whether she wanted to go to Cafe Asia or to Cava for her 16th birthday, she might say like Paul, I'm hard pressed between the two. They're both good options. Now, right now she would say Cava, which is unfortunate for her father because I much prefer Cafe Asia too, but it's her birthday. But eventually Elizabeth would make a decision between the two good options. And that's what Paul does here. In the rest of 23 and 24, God, look, let's, let's be clear. Paul understands God's the one who's going to make the choice. It, it's a hypothetical. If it was up to Paul, and it's not, but if it were, if it was just about Paul and Jesus, he would have no difficulty choosing between living and dying because in dying, he gets Jesus. Paul's desire is to depart and be with Christ because being with Christ, verse 23, is far better, far better to have Jesus. Being with Jesus in eternity is far better than anything we could ask or hope or imagine, and he's ready to depart and be with Jesus. Verse 23, the word depart, is the, the word that was used uh, of a ship 
unmooring from the shoreline and going on a trip. Paul's ready to take a trip into eternity. I remember when I was, I don't know, five, six, seven, somewhere in there, my parents decided to take us to the beach, Virginia Beach, and I don't know, it was 4.30 in the morning, something like that. We only did this one time that I remember, but we, Dad loaded my sister and me in the 1968 Bel Air station wagon at 4 o'clock in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. And all I remember is it's early, and he tossed me in there with my sister in the back. It's like, y'all know what a station wagon is, like one of those old ones, right? Can you picture it? So we're just laying down there, and we just sleep. And then next thing I know, we wake up at sunrise at Virginia Beach, and it was awesome. We took a trip. Paul's kind of saying, like, look, man, if I die, the world's going to grow dark, but I'm going to wake up in the light of Christ. It's going to be great. It's going to be better. Dear Christian, it's going to be much better to be with Christ. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul loves the Philippians, and he loves the lost, and he has joy in the fruitful work for Jesus. But Paul wants to clarify for the church at Philippi just how amazing death is for the Christian. As a pastor, I do quite a few funerals, but I'm here to tell you, if they die in Christ, they're better off. They're with Jesus. He wants them to be reminded of their glorious future so they won't be distracted or discouraged in living for Jesus right now. How do we endure hardship and adversity and persecution? How do we crucify our agendas and our preferences to pursue gospel-driven unity? How do we do the hard work of living for Jesus by living for the good of others in the advance of the gospel? We live knowing that the worst thing that could happen to us will deliver us into the all-glorious presence of Christ our King. That's the Christian life. True life is not found in living like you're dying. It is found in dying daily for the one who is better than life itself. And while Paul would love to be with Jesus in eternity, God still has work for him to do. Belonging to Jesus means death is gain, but it doesn't mean we just sit around and go through the motions until we die. You ever found people saying that? Well, I'm just going to sit here until... Till I die or till Jesus comes back, don't have anything to do. Oh, no, 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 no. Until we die, we have work to do for Jesus. If you're able to hear this sermon, if you belong to Christ, you, like Paul, have work to do. And it is work grounded in the reality that to live is Christ. Go back to verse 12 for a moment. How does Paul begin this thought on himself? He says, Paul is about the advance of the gospel. And then down in verse 25, what do we see? We haven't gotten there yet. But in verse 25, he says he wants to live. It's more necessary for him to live for the progress in the the faith of the Philippians. Did you know that the word advance in verse 12 and progress in verse 25 are the exact same word? How do you live for Christ? You prioritize the advance of the gospel and the progress of your church family in the faith. What does it look like to live for Christ? It looks like living for the advance of the gospel and living for the good of your local church. Which brings me to my final point. To live for Christ is to live so others may grow in the faith and glory in Christ. So it's in 25 and 26 that Paul shows us what it means to live 
as Christ or to live is Christ. Well, Paul, what in the world does that mean? Here's what it is. It's to live for the good of others. While death would take Paul into the presence of Jesus, he tells us in verse 24, it is more necessary for him to live, that is to remain in the flesh, for the church at Philippi. Do you think about your church like Paul thinks about the church at Philippi? Man, it'd be great to be with Jesus, but God has me here as a necessary part of building up his church. God has me here to live for Christ by living for the good of other Christians that I know and love and serve and invest in. That's how we ought to think about our church. So in verse 25, Paul stops thinking about what would hypothetically be best for him, and he takes God's perspective. And in that verse, we learn Paul is convinced of this. What is he convinced of? He's convinced that God's not done with Paul because he has more work for Paul to do in Philippi. Specifically, Paul is convinced that he will remain alive in the flesh and continue with the Philippians. Paul could have said that he would continue with just some of the Philippians or just continue with the Philippians, but what does he say? I'm going to continue with all the Philippians, verse 25. Why is he doing that? Paul's saying, look, I'm going to get out of this prison and I'm going to come back and I'm going to see all of y'all. And this little disunity thing that's going on in Philippi, we're going to have a little chat about it if you don't get it fixed. I'm going to continue with all y'all, and all y'all are going to get together on the gospel page, and not everybody's going to be able to do everything they want to do. We're not going to be able to do every single program and fix and hit every single agenda, and we're not going to be able to turn the church into a buffet where you just come and you get off the buffet what you want, and you call that your Jesus, and somebody else comes through the buffet line, and they're like, I don't like, I, I don't like ground beef. I want chicken, so I'm going to put some chicken on my plate. No, no, no. That's not church. Church has one meal, and he's Jesus. And that means we all got to sacrifice. We all got to subordinate our preferences. It means we're all coming. We're on the same team with one agenda and one program, and his name is Christ. And if y'all don't get it together, then I'm going to come in there, and I'm going to help y'all get it out. Y'all going to figure it out. That's what Paul's saying. He didn't have to say, I'm coming for all y'all. He could have just said, I'm coming for y'all. But he stresses the all y'all. And what is he, why is he going to do this? For their progress and joy in the faith. How many faiths are there? You can answer. One, the faith. We've got to keep advancing in our knowledge and understanding and living out of the one faith because real progress in the faith is joy inducing. As we deepen our walk with Christ and our understanding of the faith, the Spirit of God just produces more joy within. If you want to know where the joy in the Christian life is, it's diving deeper into the faith. Don't be surprised if you stagnate in the faith that you will have a suppression of your joy. Stagnation in the faith suppresses joy, but progress in the faith promotes joy. Joy And a major part of progressing in the faith is flipping the switch in your mind of how you think about church. Do we come to church for what we can get out of it? Or do we come to church because of what we've been given by Christ? 
and we're so filled up with what we've already received, we see it as the place and the people where we empty ourselves and invest in others so that the Christ who died to purchase his bride might be magnified. You see the paradigm shift? We, we live in such a consumeristic world. Well, this church has that. This church has that. And Jesus is like, just find a place and a people and go all in for them. Love my bride. And why would we do that? Because to live is Christ. And what did Christ do in his life? He died for his bride. So where do we find joy? We find joy like Paul in being used by God to help others glory in Christ. So this morning, wherever you are in the faith, for as long as God has you on this planet, Christ is life. And if Christ is life, that means living so that others, your kids and your grandkids and your 3D group and the guests that just came this morning, it's living so that they might grow in the faith, so that they might grow in joy, so that in their lives they might glory in Christ and in Christ alone. In life or in death, may Christ be magnified in North Roanoke Baptist Church. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we need you. We want to be on the same gospel page for the one living Lord Jesus Christ. God, we want to say with Paul to live Christ, to die, gain. We want to be fearless champions of the gospel and we want Christ to be magnified through our lives. God, however you need to see fit to work in us to make that happen, we pray that you would do it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.